Morning, everyone. Good to see you. Merry Christmas. I get. Thank you. I'm amped to be able to tell that, say that to you today. Um, I'm just going to start by praying, and then we're going to jump in. I've, we've got a lot, got a lot of ground to cover, so join me. <clears throat> Father, we are um, honored and privileged to gather in such a beautiful space to worship you, um, to hang out with each other, and to um, just pay attention to what your Spirit's doing. I ask that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, um, and that you'd give us sensitive hearts that um, beat um, in alignment with yours. I ask that you'd be with my words today, and that you would um, just come, Holy Spirit, and teach us something new. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, great. Welcome to Advent Week 1. It's the season of anticipation. Leading up to Christmas, um, it just means arrival, and it's a fancy Latin word where we're anticipating the arrival of King Jesus, um, particularly his birth, but also his life and ministry, and then, of course, his death. And we, um, now we, ha- we have an advent for his second coming, but we sort of think about all of that and the beginnings of it during this season. So um, I was speaking to someone recently who made a very relatable comment. She said, I don't know, like, I love, I love Christmas, but when we get to this part in church, I just, I've heard it all so many times. Like, if you've grown up in the church, every December you've done this, and you've, you've, done, you've done the things. You've done the pageants, and you've, like, put stars on trees in churches and lit candles, um, and it just starts to become um, routine, and not in a good way. Sometimes there's some really good routines we get in, but sometimes you get to this season and it's just repetitive. It's like, oh, okay, the Advent season. And if you're in church leadership at all, it's like, okay, here we go, Christmas season. Let's like gear up. And it just kind of becomes this thing. Um, so whether you've grown up in church or not, I imagine just in American culture, you can sympathize with this a little bit. Um, so here's a cheesy photo from Google Images. I tried to, I Googled cheesy Christmas photo. Um, you can see the Kincaid water print in the background there. Yeah, it's, it is nice, okay? It's fine, maybe. Um, but it's mass-produced. This is like the feeling of Christmas that you get after you've done it a billion times. It's mass-produced, and you know that underneath that camel's head, there's like a piece of chocolate and like a number on his ear. Um, and so here's the thing. If you love Christmas, um, and this person I talked to loved Christmas, but the, the point is just that it can be difficult to be moved by it, really. It's just you kind of get into a weird headspace. Um, and it just starts to feel so commercialized and so repetitive, and we lose just a basic desire or stamina, I think, to sort of invest in it again and contemplate it. And so this series we're calling um, Unto Us a Son is Given. And it comes from Isaiah chapter 9, and it was read by the Betrayal family earlier, and I'm going to read it again. So um, this is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. If you have your Bible, it's up on the screen. I'm going to read it. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called... Um, man, I dare you to go through this series without going, Wonderful Counselor, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this is a famous little piece of the Bible written 700-ish years before Jesus was born. And so it's classically understood as prophecy. Um, And without getting into the weeds of how exactly that shakes out with respect to Isaiah's immediate context, which is fascinating, I just want to hone in on this first line. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Um, So all of us are just entering this season right now, starting right now, however you feel about it. It started like after Halloween. (laughs) We're all like, oh, too much. Um, And for some, that's wonderful news. We love it. We don't get sick of it, not at church, not at home. I've got my sweater. I'm ready to go. Um, But for some of us, the holidays are tough. Um, Our home lives are not so great. The holidays mean longer hours at work, and so another year of just sort of missing out on what the world gets to do. Um, And it can also just be an incredibly painful reminder of loved ones we've lost. The holidays always come with that. And um, frankly, it's just a painful reminder of everything you don't have while everyone else seems to have it in their warm, cozy, perfect homes. And there's an abundance over there. And so this can be a really painful time of year, actually. And when you come into the church and you see, like, Christmas decorations, which are stunning, and thank you so much, for some of you, you're like, ugh, here we go, a month. Gird your loins. We got to do it. So to all, to all of you, the hurt, the indifferent, the excited, <laughs> um, welcome this morning to our church. I want you to know that we've prayed and sought God for what he would have us teach on in this complicated season, and we felt a spark to come to this place. We feel confident this morning to remind you both individually and corporately um, that despite all the cliches and the commercialism and the repetition and the boredom, we feel led to say once again that to you, a gift has been given, a gift And whatever it means in all of its mystery, something has been placed in your lap, a generous present. Unto you, a son has been given. And it's not a metaphor. It's not a myth. It is the truth, which means that we're being invited once again to leave behind the cheesy Christian art in order to try and think on it once again. We're going to do it together. The Bible tells the story about a God who is bent on giving you a gift, his son, Jesus. He will stop at nothing to give you this gift. And, um, and the son is given because, as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will just wax eloquent about, because there is a God and he loves you. He loves you. And he desires for you to just have this gift. This God has something bigger in mind for you than you currently even realize. Merry Christmas. So here we believe God speaks to us um, through the pages of the Bible. We're committed to a lifelong humble study of it. So turn with me to the very beginning. Um, If you want, or you can just look up on the screen, whatever you want. So remember the Old Testament, the first half, it's not written in English. Uh, Neither is the second half, for that matter. Um, But the first book of the Bible, Genesis, was written in Hebrew, as most of you are familiar with, and it's a Hebrew word that rose to the surface of my study in preparation for this sermon, and I want to show it to you right now. The word is natan, uh, which means to give, 
And I'm not going to complicate it or try something fancy about it. The basic idea is that you have something, and that thing someone else doesn't have, presenting you now with a choice. Will you natan it or will you keep it? Straightforward. Um, it could be a small thing, like a piece of fruit, or it could be a more significant thing, like a chunk of land. You can you natan both. And if you want to describe the person who does the giving, you do so by sort of analyzing both the quality of the gift and the quality of the person's readiness to give the thing. So depending on your analysis of those two things, you come up with a conclusion that this person is either stingy or perhaps a reticent giver. They're not ready or willing, but they do it anyway. Or they're generous, on the other hand. They lean forward into it and give it all. First character in the Bible to do any sort of giving, nataning, God. Ready? This is what God says to the humans in Genesis 1.29. God said, behold, I natan, I give you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. I'm taking care of you all. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made. Behold, super good. So this is the scene. God gives, period. He does not hold back. He gives generously. He's stoked to give. Can't wait to give. And I just want to pause. This is the picture. It's the first picture you get of God in the Bible. He's creative. He organizes the world, and he gives. God gives generously. And that statement, I think, is kind of doing one of three things in the room. God gives generously. It's falling in one of three camps. First, you love that statement. You're someone who loves that statement. You heard it, and you nod. Some of you are like, amen. It's part of your theology, and you're, you're ready. Number two, you like the statement, but you're wary because it feels a little bit like a marketing scheme connected to the dark side of like a prosperity gospel or something. What are we supposed to think about a God being generous? Hmm? Is he going to give me everything I want, or what is, what's, what's the catch? And frankly, like you might even carry wounds about messaging like that because straight up in your own life, he hasn't just like, doesn't feel like he's been super generous. Like you can, you kind of have to get into this mindset to be like, oh, thanks God for that. I think, you know, some of you are in that camp. Some of you are honestly like you don't have much experience with God. It's like, well, he, based on the craziness of the world, I don't know if generous is the right adjective. He feels a little bit removed. Hmm? So wherever you fall, I just want you to pay attention to the Bible. Despite all the scientific debates and controversies and enormous misunderstandings about the book of Genesis, the one thing I feel compelled to communicate to you today is that the community of human beings who bore witness to encountering the living God of the universe and who penned this story are trying to communicate to you, the reader, a very clear picture. In the beginning, whatever that looks like scientifically that they didn't take the time to describe, God created all that you see. He created it all. And that is the truth. And here's the kicker. He didn't have to. He didn't need to. He was delighted to. He wanted to. The scene of creation is unbelievably good and beautiful and brilliant. And that's how the Bible opens. In the beginning, God created a good world. And he made an abundant world which produced fruit out of the ground. 
He made things beautiful and rich with potential, and then he made men and women to humbly, kindly, with goodness and with love, to live well inside of it. And then they get a rule over it. That is, they get to cultivate life and make families and cultures and communities. This is the generous God of the Bible. Without even planning to, we opened up with that song. Way to go, worship team. We're in sync. The picture, the picture of humanity... That this is, the picture of humanity is that they're enjoying these good gifts from God, and then they steward them, they continue them, they extend the garden outward, they go past the borders of Eden, and they take it out, they multiply, they spread. So I have given to you, says the creator, so go and give, 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 and guess what? I'll keep giving, and giving, and giving, and giving, and giving. This is, it's an economy of generosity, is the idea. God is portrayed as the great sustainer, the provider, the giver, and the works of his hands are designed to regenerate and multiply and spread and keep giving. There is no lack. I'm just going to really make this point clear. If you can get this picture in your head and really believe it for just a second, or entertain the possibility of believing it for a second, that God wants to give, and that the ideal is a grateful humanity who trusts the generosity of God, who sees in God their source of life, of love, of purpose, then the plot conflict of the Bible and ultimately the climax and the resolution found in Jesus will make a lot of sense. Genesis 3 tells of two humans who are asked to entertain a question by a very tricky little serpent. Here's the question. Can you really trust God? This is the question. Because remember, there's that tree in the garden that they're not supposed to eat of and the, what, what do we all wonder? Why would God put that there? Why would he put it there? God presents humans with the dignity of choice. I, again, once again, me and Clipart, we just went on a date this week. <laughs> Spent way too much time. It's worth it, though. Watch. God presents humans with the dignity of choice. He's not making robots. He's making glorious creatures of honor and dignity. They're in his image, for Pete's sake. So there are these beings that in their own volition choose and make and give and love and live for the good. So before them, he always, he will always place a choice. He will always place a choice. They're dignified creatures. In this case, it's in the form of a fruit. Now, it's, oh man, it's very significant in the story. Just even, we're only three pages in, but it is very significant that it's a piece of fruit. Because what, what do you do with fruit? You eat it, right? And what were we just told humans and animals have an abundance of? Fruit to eat. Remember that verse we read? You, like the whole world is covered in fruit trees. Go nuts. So the point is, is I'm giving you all this food. Trust me, there's enough for you. There's more than enough. I am generous, but I don't want you to eat from that one. There's one. And just trust me, don't eat from that. The rest of the world, go crazy. Again, if we can sort of put on hold the scientific debates and the baggage around the book and just consider for a moment that it might actually be saying something incredibly profound about humanity and our relationship to God, then hopefully you can see that this infamous temptation story actually holds the core foundational truth for the human condition. 
when that pesky, crafty little voice entices humans to take the fruit from the forbidden tree, it has nothing to do with the actual fruit. There's nothing magical about the fruit. It has everything to do with how humans answer that little question of, can you really trust God? The serpent says, you should eat from that tree because God is clearly keeping something from you. And you're going to have to get scrappy. You're going to need to get a little greedy down here if you want the good life. It's not just going to come to you. God's economy isn't abundant. He's obviously keeping something from you. Look at that tree. Why wouldn't, you just, why wouldn't he let you eat it? So wise up and feast now while you can. You can't really trust him or else he wouldn't put it there. And that idea plants in their mind. And they have a choice, believe it or not. Will I believe it or will I not? Next verse, ready? When the woman saw suddenly that that tree had started to look good, it was a delight to her eyes. She, it, she, it, she desires it to make herself wise, so she takes the fruit, she eats, and then she natans. Watch. She gives it to her husband who's with her, and then he eats. So instead of relying upon God as the giver, they start their own side hustle, giving and taking amongst themselves something which never should have gone into play. When God shows up on the scene, the great giver of life, the generous God, he asks the man, did, did you eat from the tree? In other words, did you not trust me? Here's what the man says, classic. The woman whom you Natan to be with me, she Natan me the fruit, and I ate. Now, I'm using the Hebrew word so you can see there is a clear, there's clear literary intention here to the development of this theme. God gives in abundance with generosity. Just one chapter ago, humans were totally game. <clears throat> they depended on it, and it was their joy to live lives of gratitude and worship and harmony with each other and the generous God of creation. But the moment they listened to the lie, they necessarily, they necessarily had to distance themselves from God in order to step back and question his goodness. They started to analyze his judgment of what was good and evil, what was a good idea, what was a bad idea. They took a step back, they distanced themselves, and as they started to analyze that and pay attention to the lie, they became paranoid. And the atmosphere grew thick with a sense of scarcity, which resulted in greed. Like, quick, let's take quick. There's not going to be enough, and we need whatever's in that tree if we want to be wise. And so that feeling of a, that scarcity, the feeling of, oh, we got to do something, took over, and it was, it was uncontrollable. So pay attention to this. When we live into this sort of atmosphere, when we choose not to trust God, we suddenly find ourselves in a shame-based, greedy, blame-shifting, anxious culture. It's dog-eat-dog. It's every man for himself because now there's this pervasive idea at work. Here's the idea. You're keeping something from me, and I can't trust you. That plagues the human mind. They say, I got to protect what I want and what I need because I don't know when I'm going to get my fill again. This is what humans are dominated by. And as, our human, as humans, it's just our default mindset. We think that way about our money, about the attention of our loved ones or those we want attention from. We're greedy for it. We hoard it. We think that way about our futures. We're super scared that there's not going to be enough and that we need to get our fill quick while we can. 
But what happens to the human heart when it's just dominated by that feeling of fear and insecurity and scarcity and paranoia and shame? Check this out. Adam looks at his co-partner, his wife, his stunning equal in every sense, according to Genesis 1, 2, 1 and 2. He looks at this very good and generous gift from God, this person, and he says, it's her fault. And it's not just hers. It's yours because you gave her to me. I don't like these gifts that you gave. In plain language, the Bible diagnoses humans to have transitioned in their heart posture. We now live lives on the defense. And our posture goes from, thank you, God, to, you mean to harm me, God? You mean to embarrass me, God? You mean to shame me, God? You mean to keep good things from me? I know you do. You withheld that fruit, so we had to get scrappy down here and take it. You aren't generous. And neither are those other humans you surrounded me with. That kind of world. <laughs> Welcome to human culture. That's the biblical wisdom for us. This is the biblical story. And this, my friends, is the plot conflict. God wants to give generously and bless the world through humans because he loves them and he delights in them. The problem, they don't trust him. How will this story resolve? <laughs> Cue the rest of the Bible. So um, oh, I had to do a lot of... Um, cutting out of this sermon of what we could talk about. In general, as the story goes, the Old Testament continues. And when God commissions people to be his ambassadors, because he keeps working through them, when he commissions people to be his ambassadors of generous blessing, how good of a job do they usually do? <laughs> it's just a mixed bag at best. Like, honestly, reading the Bible is much more like watching a gritty drama made up of really selfish characters. But if you miss the big picture, that it's God trying to be generous to a greedy people, then when you read the Bible, it can be very confusing. Like that confusing story when Abraham lies about his wife in Egypt and then things go well for him. Like, what the? Or when he and Sarah abuse their Egyptian slave. It's like, what am I reading? But the point is that these are flawed people who are paranoid that there won't be enough. That's the entire point of the Abraham, Sarah, can't get pregnant story. Like, is God generous? Is this going to work? There's, there, there's a scarcity mindset that there won't be enough, even though they're God's chosen vessels of blessing. So it's not, it's a, <laughs> this isn't a book about stellar humans, not yet. It's about a generous God who, despite humanity's hell-bent mission to self-destruct and hurt others on their way out, he'll just keep blessing them. So this is why even after um, Abraham behaved like a paranoid, scarcity-minded, sort of fearful child in Egypt, God still rescued him and then generously gave him in abundance. So th um, think on another example with me. Remember uh, Israel enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Classic. Let my people go. In this case, Pharaoh ha became, has become the embodiment of the scarcity-minded human. He's super afraid that if he doesn't act proactively against the, all of these image bearers, they're going to take something from him. There's not enough for Egypt. So he starts to act in this paranoid, anxious way. Um, so, but remember, when they're finally set free, when Moses leads them out of Egypt, they're finally set free. Do you remember what the Egyptians do to the newly liberated people on their way out of town? They start to pile onto them gold and jewelry 
and riches and abundance. Like they just generously give them all this stuff. God has them do that. <laughs> Why? What is that story about? The Bible's trying to show you that when God does new things, he always pours out in abundance. He always gives generously. He is determined to begin a new thing, and he lavishes them to carry on this project, to bless the world. So um, pause. Don't misunderstand me. The Bible isn't promising like endless, well-stocked bank accounts for followers of Jesus, like not at all. Um, abundance is going to come to mean so much more than material wealth. But in these stories, pay attention, there's a symbolism happening. When God's people are bedecked with gold and with jewels, it's always a pointer to something much bigger. It's a reference to that garden abundance he is determined to pour out into the world, but which humans don't want to trust to receive. <laughs> He means to redeem this world. How? Through one family. He promises Abraham that through him and his descendants, he's going to bless the world. So something cool happens when God brings them to the foot of this mountain in the book of Exodus, and he gives them a command to build this sacred structure. Remember what it's called? Tabernacle. Yeah? Weird word. The tent is to literally house the presence of God. So it starts to click in the minds of humankind. Once again, oh, that's right. God means to dwell with us like he did in the garden. That's what he's trying to do. He's going to make it happen. And so do you know what material adorns the tent structure and all of the vessels inside and those sacred objects? All that gold, all that jewelry, all those riches they got in Egypt, they just got hooked up in Egypt and now they're supposed to use it. Here's the point. The authors of Exodus are aware of the story of the beginning. And they're trying to show us something. God is generous. He gives. Always he has more to give. Eat from all these trees. But here's the thing. I want you to trust me. Okay? How? Well, what is the opposite of trust that God will provide for you? It's greed. It's hoarding for fear that there's not going to be enough. It's taking something that should be given away and instead saying, I'm going to keep this and do with it what I want to do. So right after the command to build this beautiful golden tabernacle and all this gold stuff, to, to just be artistic, he employs artists to get the job done. Right after that command, what does Israel do instead with their gold? Famously, they build this bizarre little statue of a cow. And in a festival of ritual drink and sex, they worship it instead. They don't trust God enough to let him have their gold. They do something else with it. Here's the big picture. God is generous, but humans, when given the choice, prefer not to be. What hope <laughs> do we have? So this is how the Old Testament progresses. And if any of you are bored enough to um, read, read my thesis, which I'm working on right now, we can get coffee and talk more. It's all about gold in the Hebrew Bible. But here's what I want to say in summary so we can just get to the Christmas story already. God's plan has always been to cultivate a world where humans dwell with God in sort of this loving partnership. It's a regenerative world that bursts with life, almost as if by magic. It just keeps producing more and more and more. Have you ever planted one zucchini seed? Like, you will rue the day you put that one zucchini seed in the ground. <laughs> Mary DeYoung, you're with me. Okay, for this is, this, but for this all to be fixed, God has to work to transition the human heart out of a scarcity mindset and into something else. So here's what the transition looks like. Something like this. Um, broken humanity sort of thinks on one side. It's like left to my own devices, I'm prone to fear, 
to worry, to anxiety, but also to paranoia and greed because I know that there's not going to be enough for me or that I'm going to have to, I'm going to come up short and ashamed or something. I know that I'm going to have to claw and fight to get my share. And in whatever, this manifests itself in a billion different ways in the human condition. You kind of know where this is at in your own life. But a shift looks like going from that to saying, what if God is capable of filling me and restoring me? In all of those places, I'm so scared to go because of just how empty I feel there. What if I'm actually being invited to let go and hold up my hands to him because I believe that he is actually generous and intends to give me what I need? So the Old Testament develops dozens of portraits of people who come really close to this. And when they do, he credits it to them as righteousness. He meets them. He encounters them. He provides for them. He sees them. He sustains them. He fills them. He gives and gives and gives. But the heartache of the Old Testament is that the world is still broken. And we actually need an everlasting, global, indeed cosmic solution. So we come to Isaiah, an ancient scroll put together by a prophet and his disciples, all of whom are in touch with the Spirit of God at work in the world, and a word of hope is penned in the midst of the chaos all around them. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is Natan. That's the word. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the Bible is written along this grain of hope that one day God would send someone who would break open the dam of the garden abundance in humanity's heart once more, and that eternal life would be given in everlasting generosity. And so we have this fascinating story, you guys, in the Gospels, where these magi from the East, through some pagan methods of their own, it is quite vague, come to realize that this bright star in some capacity is shining for some mysterious prophetic reason. Why does Matthew include this bit of the story? What is the significance of a story about non-Jewish mystical pagan sorcerers recognizing a star? <laughs> Besides that it's blasphemous. This is a good example of that cheesy nativity scene that becomes so repetitive you forget to think on it. Yeah? Well, do I remember a promise that God made to humans over a thousand years prior that one day he's going to bless the whole world, not just Jews, but all the nations, all those people from the East, through the vehicle of this one family? Yep. And the point was that the whole cosmic order would be swept up in this perspective shift. God is generous. And if I learn to trust him to return that which I greedily and fearfully hoard for myself, if I return that to him, I will experience everlasting life. God is on a mission not just for the chosen people, but for the whole world. So Matthew foreshadows what is going to happen in this gospel story. He tells of the nations coming. Even when Israel is being wildly unfaithful. You know, these obscure wise men, do you know what they come bringing? Gifts. They come to give back gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we don't have time to flesh this out, but do you know where all three of those things showed up in the Old Testament? It was in the construction of the tabernacle 
All three are mentioned. It was that pivotal moment where God invited the people to believe in his generosity, to trust him by bringing what they had, gold, frankincense, and myrrh included, with a willing heart to hold what they had loosely before him, not so that he could snatch it away as if he were selfish. No, that was literally the lie of the serpent. But so that he could show them how freeing it is to not live in such a way where we strangle the life out of what we're so afraid to lose. To flourish is to trust that God is generous, that he is on a mission to bring about his goodness in the world. You can take your valuables and build a golden calf, or you can take your gold and your frankincense and your myrrh, and you can see to the larger vision of Emmanuel, God dwelling with us. So Matthew portrays these pagan mystics of all people as actually coming to realize this. That in bringing these symbolic gifts of wealth and honor to this infant Jesus, they recognize that God has generously provided a son. And somehow through this son, things are going to be made right and new. Through this son, God changes the heart, the mind. He takes people from scarcity in ab to, to abundance, from greed to generosity. Through Jesus, he changes the game. And so Jesus grows up. And in one of the most famous moments of how am I doing on time? Oh, I think I'm okay. Jesus grows up, and in one of his most famous sermons, he looks at the broken, hurting, helpless, and poor people, those who seem to have nothing to give. They have nothing to give. And those have, and man, to be clear, nothing has been given to them. He looks at them. He shines a spotlight on them. And you know what he says to them? You know what he has the audacity to say to them? Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. He goes on, but how can he do that? How can Jesus go to the poorest, the most broken, and look on them, look them in the eyes and say with full integrity, you're blessed? Could you just, just think on that. Could you imagine doing that? Go to someone who is cold and hurting outside, kneel down and say, you're so blessed. How's that going to land? You're supposed to hear these words of Jesus and feel like a disconnect. It, it, the authors have, <laughs> you're supposed to be driven into like a question. What does he mean? How can he say that? What's, how does he do that? This is Jesus' ministry. This is his point. God's kingdom is here. And he's pouring it out generously, abundantly, everlastingly to the hungry and the needy and those who aren't already filled up with their own greedy gain to those who want it. Jesus has on offer something that can't just be boiled down to material abundance. He has on offer the Holy Spirit, the presence of the living God now given to dwell, Emmanuel, with us. Hopefully all these themes are coming together in your mind as much as they are in mine. And from, this, from his very hands flows the abundant regenerative life of new creation. So he heals. He performs miracles. So that's not to say Jesus isn't interested in giving like goods or mater material gifts. In fact, he's going to encourage people to do just that. <laughs> Jesus was a human who cared for those practical needs. He Immensely so. But his aim has always been to free us from the spirit of fear and that strangling grip we have on every aspect of our lives so that we might be free to be generous with our own material goods 
with our love, with our time, because in him is the greatest source of life, and he promises to fill us up with it. Um, maybe I don't need to say this, but for my own personality type, I need to say this, and for those of you out there that are thinking like me, in no way am I saying that you need to just like practice unhealthy servanthood or something where you overextend yourself to the point of bitterness. Or that's, not God's, that's not what he wants. <laughs> You shouldn't forsake practices like Sabbath and rest or anything like that, nor should you just sell everything and move to the streets as if that's like what everyone's supposed to do. This is, listen to God. He wants you to trust him and listen to him. <laughs> okay, there you go. The point I want to make, though, is that the Bible is telling us a singular story about a God of generosity who, by tragic events, all of which we know to be true in our lives, has sadly become the object of mistrust for us. We're hesitant to take his hand. We're not sure we can trust him. But it's Christmas time. And the words of the prophets sound on the ancient winds again. And we're all listening this morning. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. God wants you to contemplate his generosity through a new lens. The lens of Jesus. In Jesus, God has given us his very life to show us that he loves the world. In Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we remember that he took upon himself the fate of death so that in his resurrection, we might see something new, a new path. Jesus promises that emptying ourselves in order to be filled up with him, to trust him, is to make room for him to continually, generously fill us up. And what is it that he fills us with? His very life, he promises. We have hope beyond death, and that eternal life is not merely for beyond. It starts here and now. We are empowered, we're filled up, we're sent out as ambassadors of God's generosity because to us a son is given. Um, this sermon is very personal to me because I've been struggling with this for a few years. Deep in my soul, I recognized a few years ago a real hesitation to say I trust God. In fact, it kind of killed me how quickly church people would say that. It's like, what do you do? You, like, you don't know what he's going to ask you to do, and you're just like, I trust him. And like, I just can't say that with like full confidence all the time. Like, what about this bad thing that happened to this really good family that trusted God? And I, or like, how do I know you're not going to trick me or like rob me of these things I just give you, God? Um, and though I knew something was off about that in my heart, I was just sort of stuck in it. And I kept playing chicken with God. <laughs> and I just kept him at arm's length. Somewhere in my heart, there was this happening. When I went to the conference um, a few weeks ago during one of the ministry times, I was overwhelmed by God's presence, and I began to sense his spirit at work, with, work in me, and very clearly he began to dig at this part of my heart. Um, and by his spirit, I began to contemplate a very scary and very real scenario. What if the image of God that I have in my mind is actually manufactured by a deceptive voice? And what if I'm eating fruit that I shouldn't every time I choose to believe in that image instead of trusting in the different image of God given to me in Scripture? <laughs> what if God really does love me? What if the real God really loves me? And what if the God I often pray to just isn't that God? Sorry if you... <laughs> feel betrayed that one of your pastors has been praying to the wrong God every now and then, but there you go. In fact, I think we all do it. So once again, I, I said, okay, Lord, 
teach me how to trust you, like the real God, Jesus. Teach me how to trust you. And it was game over. It's like overwhelmed by the Spirit of God. I took a new breath of life in many ways. And then someone came up to me, and they spoke a verse over me, and I want to share it with you in this, this morning in light of our Advent series. Paul says, For I have been crucified with Christ. Watch, watch this. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Nevertheless, I live. But the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The man who prayed that over me said, this verse is going to be with you for the rest of your life. Begin to meditate on it. So I did. I started that night, and it started to click. I'm free <laughs> to live a different sort of life, a light one, a trusting one, a hopeful one, a generous life. I'm free to be generous because I have access to another life, a greater life, a better life, the life of God who promises to give himself to me. Why, fellow brothers and sisters, are we able to follow Jesus even unto death? Because he promises to give us life. His life. Why are we able to gener be generous with our lives, our affections? Because we have faith in a different source of life besides our own strength. Unto us a son is given. Please, please stand with me, if you will. We're going to do a ministry time here in a minute. Marshall's going to come up. But um, to exercise some poetic pastoral license here, I think this Christmas season, the message God wants to give you is this. <clears throat> Listen, little ones, you've been lied to. I'm so sorry that it has been so hard. You've been convinced to think that if you keep me at a distance, if you hold me at arm's length, you can somehow protect yourself and protect your heart but I am the giver of life, the very thing you crave. And the tragic irony is that in order to preserve life, you keep yourself from it. You are literally, or literarily, eating fruit, which is killing you. Thinking all the while that by scarfing it down, you might live. But you're hardly living. You're barely surviving. You're just scraping by. You are dominated by a spirit of white-knuckled scarcity. You're fearful. You're trembling. You're anxious that you got to fight or there will be nothing left. That's not living. It's killing you. And I want you to live. I want you to flourish. I know you've experienced such disappointment. You're so hesitant to take my hand because of the hard road you and those around you have walked. The what-ifs plague you. But I'm inviting you to trust me once again or depending on who you are for the first time. Come to me. Invite me into those places in your heart that you felt so abandoned to. Give me a chance to warm your heart. I am generous. I have eternal life. I give you myself, for I am the way, the truth, and the life.